The following program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of KRLD or Intercom Communications. This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. You know, we'd be remiss as we start the show if we don't put a friendly reminder back out there. We know COVID-19 is extremely contagious. Unfortunately, as you all know, The president and first lady have tested positive, and we wish them a very speedy recovery. But this underscores how contagious COVID-19 is. Please, the tools we've got, wear a mask, physical distance, wash your hands, get your flu shot. Thomas, this virus knows no boundaries. And we're coming into that seasonal period where if you've been out in public, you know that coughs and sneezes are becoming a lot more prolific. So everything that we've been talking about here, Steve, boom, headlines. Thomas, you're so right. You know, as you look at all the data, whether it comes from the CDC or whether it comes from major research universities, it has indicated since day one how contagious this disease is. Let's look at the data. And with that in mind, I think it's time to peel back the onion a little bit and look at the data. We couldn't have a better person than Jasmine Tiro, who's the associate professor in the Department of Population and Data Sciences at UT Southwestern Medical Center. She is a data expert. Jasmine, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. You know, we've heard a lot about testing, COVID testing, the types of testing. Do you test when you have symptoms? Do you test when you're asymptomatic? Should you be tested when you're exposed to someone who's positive? Can you help clear up all this confusion? I um, really appreciate the question because access to testing continues to be a concern and people are reporting confusion. Without testing, we cannot understand how effective our efforts to prevent transmission are working and get care to those who need it. People who are experiencing any COVID symptoms, fever, chills, shortness of breath, aches, new loss of taste or smell, fatigue, diarrhea, all of these um, individuals who are experiencing any of these COVID symptoms should get tested, as well as anyone who is exposed to someone who tested positive for coronavirus they should be tested as well. We've documented that people sometimes don't have any symptoms, but they still can get others infected. So to prevent um, and make sure that those who are positive and have the virus isolate and don't transmit the infection to someone else, they should be tested. Do you think the reliability of the test differ from the types of tests we have in the reagents used? I think that there has been a lot of concern about how we're testing and we've, we've had to really ramp up our abilities um, to use appropriate tests and get access to reagents. Go to a, 
approved testing site, one that is endorsed by um, our local county officials um, and are sponsored by our local health systems like UT Southwestern and Texas Health Resources. They are very conscious of the importance of using reliable and accurate tests and have done things in their labs to make sure that the quality of their testing is high. You know, I've talked to uh, some people that have said, you know, they tested positive and then they took another test and there were negative and vice versa. If you go to one of these reliable test sites, would you say for the most part their tests are fairly accurate? Yes, we're only as effective as the quality of our testing programs. And they have rigorous procedures to monitor their laboratories for the accuracy of those testing. Um, And they do that continuously. It's not just a one-time validation process. So I do feel confident in using a reliable testing site that you will get accurate information. Let me pivot just a little bit if I could. You know, there's a lot of things out there with the traditional media. There are things out on social media. There are things that we in the healthcare profession read, and we know it's misinformation. From where you sit, how would you define What really is misinformation? There is a lot of information about COVID available on the internet. And and as you said, social media and the news, it can be really overwhelming. Simply put, misinformation is false information. There is no scientific evidence to support the information provided. And misinformation can be very dangerous if people follow through with the recommendations. The most important way to guard against misinformation is to verify the source of that information. And now there are even websites that help flag COVID misinformation. So there are resources on our internet that can help you differentiate and um, note which things are true information and which things are false. Do you have any nuggets of what you would say from your experience to help people guard against misinformation? What are some things they should do so they don't get caught up in this bad or false information? It is really challenging, and I think the most important thing is, are they providing links to the actual source of the information, the actual study being done, who's reporting it? Do they cite who their source is? The other thing that people have mentioned is, are they trying to trigger emotions And what I mean by that is, are they trying to get you to believe a a particular perspective by playing upon your emotions? Um, Sometimes information that is framed that way uh, from an emotional angle might be trying to present um, and transmit false information. So check on that. There are valid sources of information. Trust those valid sources. Think about who is sending the information and um, go to those trusted sources like the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, Dr. Tiro, when people do get good information and it's valid information from some of the sources you just cited, what do you suggest to them so they can help amplify the spread of accurate and correct COVID information to their family, friends, and community? I think 
the power of social media is really amazing in the ways in which community members can help share information. But think carefully about when and how you share information in your network. Only share information that you have verified. Speak up if you think information is false and ask website administrators to take that false information down. Be a part of the community that checks information. Check in with trusted sources and help your friends and family members learn how to recognize false or misinformation. It's a skill that we all need because we're constantly looking for more information and it's hard to know sometimes what's true and what's false. And that's a skill that all adults and children need. We are talking about accuracy of data and information with Dr. Jasmine Tiro from UT Southwestern Medical Center here on the human side of healthcare. We'll be back with more of this conversation right after this quick break. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on accuracy around COVID-19. How many of us have experienced something where we knew we were getting misinformation? We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Jasmine Tiro of the UT Southwestern Medical Center. And as we approach fall, Everybody is COVID worn out. So in light of that, as we still are facing COVID cases that are increasing now, even as of last week, how do we process this, our concern for COVID, and our overall mental and physical health? COVID is scary, and there are things that you can do to prevent and protect yourself from COVID, but it's not the only threat to your health. Pandemics are stressful. We are social beings and staying physically and socially distant is challenging. We want to connect, but fear for our safety. It is really important for people to take care of their mental health. Under stress, people react differently. Some smoke or relapse in their smoking. They drink more alcohol to cope. It's important to monitor your habits and focus on your healthy habits, eating well-balanced meals, exercising regularly, getting adequate sleep, and most importantly, monitoring your symptoms and not ignoring your symptoms. Don't delay seeking care if you are having unusual health symptoms. It is really important that you seek care from your provider. Call your primary care provider to determine whether it's an urgent issue or an emergent issue that requires you seeking the, the emergency room. Health systems and providers have put safety measures in place to protect you from COVID. And also, don't ignore getting screened regularly for cancer and other things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Those are a bigger threat to your health sometimes than COVID if you are healthy. You know, in having discussions with you and even in our previous interviews with you, it's easy to know that you are evidence-based and you really believe in data. So let me expand a little bit on this topic about worried about doing routine screenings and doing things to protect ourselves for other than COVID-19. As you look at the data 
and you look at the virtual visits that clinicians have done during COVID-19, do you see telehealth, telemedicine, virtual meetings with your primary care provider as valuable? That's question one. In question two, do you think we'll expand this as we go post-COVID-19? I think that healthcare systems are really excited about the way in which we are delivering care via telehealth. It is increasing reach um, and making certain things easier, and I think it's here to stay. That being said, not everything can be handled via a telehealth visit. And when you're doing a telehealth visit, you don't have use, uh, clinical staff don't have use of all of their senses, right? They're relying on what they can see on camera. And it's important that patients participate in the visit process by being honest and straightforward about the symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, doctors can then use those cues to help monitor and triage symptoms and, and think through follow-up plans. Dr. Chero, this is Thomas Miller. I'd like to extrude one thing that you mentioned before about social media. And this is one of my observations. I actually took a big step back from social media in March, April, when I just saw a plethora of, like somebody would try to say something and then people would pile on with these, oh, you're an idiot. It's all this opinion that really feeds and fuels, I think, that misinformation. And I just had to step away from it. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I think social media, um, in terms of the speed at which we can share information, can be a great benefit. But there are definite drawbacks in terms of social media. Seeing bad information be spread can be extremely emotionally upsetting. And then trying to be, you know, a, a constructive part of the social media community can also be exhausting because you're trying to provide persuasive communication back to your your cohort, to your, your network, your members, and you end up in these dialogue wars with others. And it can be unproductive. Um, and it can be stressful to your mental health. It's important to recognize if you are um, experiencing exhaustion and, as you said, take a step away. And I think we're too quick to believe that just by reading something, we can become experts. Elaborate on that from your perspective. I think a lot about what my expertise is and what's the limit of my expertise and how I have to partner with other experts who have received a lot of training to get to their level, um, to think through the nuances of that. And one of the things that's been really highlighted in terms of how we can better understand and, and combat misinformation is all of the different experts who are necessary to help that. For example, um, some of the groups that we're now partnering with are um, engineers um, who can do machine learning to monitor the spread of information and the frequency that certain information is being shared online and then use that to then trigger responses so that we can be more proactive in combating misinformation. And that's how we get the expertise of our computer scientists to help know when we need to communicate more effectively. 
uh, with the population and also where we need to do it geographically. And that, for me, is really exciting and fascinating how we can use different people's expertise. But I don't think everyone understands what's necessary to gain expertise. And so there's a lot of people who are quick to rush in to provide a comment without necessarily uh, being thoughtful and self-reflective about whether they're in the right position to do that. Maybe that's one of the new normals that will come from COVID is being more of an observer and just a watcher and a listener than a commentor when we don't know what we're talking about. I do think not rushing in quickly to comment is, 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 is a very wise wise position, learning from others and listening and thinking about who you respect as an expert and helping them amplify their message. Okay, here's a question. So walk us back to February, March, and from your position at UT Southwestern, not, and here comes this thing that we've never experienced before. And then a couple of weeks into this, all of a sudden, it's labeled a pandemic. So now we have a pandemic on our hands. And yet there was all this mystery and lack of knowledge, and we didn't understand what this thing was. How did you, on your level, start to build information that you could rely on? I think the most important thing to know in understanding science is that knowledge is ever accumulating. People sometimes think that we always know already everything we need to know and that we can speak with certainty, scientific certainty about everything. And what I think this pandemic laid bare is when you have to make comments and suggest perspectives and make recommendations to the public that reveals more of where we are uncertain from a science perspective and how we're working really hard to gather that knowledge so that we can make the best possible recommendations. I think most importantly, it was the evolution of understanding that COVID is airborne and that mask wearing can be very useful to prevent that transmission. It's different from the other coronaviruses that people have been thinking about in past um, epidemics. And so the evolution of how we communicated about mask wearing was confusing to the public and, and has continued over the past few months. And it's hard when we change our messages because we were uncertain before, but that we gathered the new scientific knowledge to really support that recommendation. Making sure that we have trusted community influencers sharing that um, accumulation of new knowledge so that people trust that new knowledge is, is, is really important for us to think through because a lot of people when knowledge evolves and the message changes, uh, become suspicious about what's being said. And that can be challenging for the media to handle and, and to frame for the public. Dr. Tiro, thank you so much for bringing this to light on the human side of healthcare. Accuracy in COVID testing, accuracy in data in, and accuracy in our communication out. Very important. Quick reminder about our podcast. It's called The Human Side of Healthcare, and it's on all the major podcast players. We would love for you to visit there and check out all of our episodes. 
When we come back, we're going to Bumpsy. <laughs> you know what Bumpsy is? It's the Baylor University Medical Center in downtown Dallas, where we are going to talk with Dr. Dion Graybeal about strokes, how to recognize when one is coming on, and how to get ahead of the train and prevent them. That's next on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us. The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. And we're going to be talking about a very serious medical condition, a stroke. And we're delighted that we've got Dr. Dion Graybill. He's the medical director of stroke at Baylor University Medical Center here in Dallas. Dr. Graybill, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, to our listeners out there, many may not recognize or understand some of the symptoms related to a stroke. Could you elaborate for our listeners? Absolutely. You know, stroke can be a very difficult problem. We typically will place the symptoms of a stroke in five different domains. When patients present with symptoms of either weakness and or numbness of the face, arm, or leg, usually on one side of the body, symptoms related to difficulty speaking, understanding others, or slurred speech, a difficulty with vision, whether loss of vision, blurred vision, doubled vision in one or both eyes. When there's an acute difficulty walking in coordination or balance or a sudden explosive type headache or is described the worst headache of your life, these five categories of symptoms are what commonly patients with stroke may present with. And it's always important as soon as those symptoms are identified to call 911. And you know, when people call 911, and as you indicated, it's so important, time really is of the essence, isn't it? Absolutely. In stroke, uh, we use the adage at times, time is brain. So just like a heart attack is a medical emergency, a stroke is at times a brain attack and also a time-dependent medical emergency. The quicker patients can arrive at the emergency room, for many patients, not for all, unfortunately, but for many patients, we have different therapies, some of which are medical, some of which are procedures where we have specialists actually go into the body to retrieve these clots at times. And we can uh, treat many of these patients from between with medical therapies, three to four and a half hours, and with some of the invasive procedures, even as far out as 24 hours from after the symptoms of the stroke started. You know, when someone is experiencing chest pain and they think they're having a heart attack and they immediately call 911, many people will take an aspirin. If you have a family member that you think is having a stroke and you've called 911, should you give them any medication? That's a hard call because, quite honestly, 
Strokes can present as either ischemic, where there's a lack of blood flow to a part of the brain where there may be a blood clot or a, an occlusion of an artery or a vessel interrupting the blood flow, or it may be a hemorrhagic stroke where there's a bleeding actually in the brain substance or a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage where there's hemorrhage in the substance in the space around the brain. So unfortunately, unlike heart attack, we can't recommend patients taking aspirin or other blood thinners for acute stroke at home, we really want them to come into the hospital immediately, get the scans needed to determine if it is an ischemic stroke where there's lack of blood flow versus a hemorrhagic stroke where there's bleeding. And then in the emergency room, we safely initiate those therapies. That's great advice. And I hope our listeners understand that if you're having a stroke or think you're having a stroke, you shouldn't take that medication, but you should call 911. And I want to ask you, Dr. Graybill, the importance of calling 911. When those EMS personnel arrive, are there things they can do for the patient en route to the hospital that you wouldn't do if you had a family member, say, drive you in an automobile? Absolutely whether we're talking about nationally or here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, about a third of patients still at this day will take a personal car or personal transport into the hospital as opposed to calling EMS and arriving by 911. Unfortunately, what happens when patients do that is they may be delayed, they don't have the medical equipment, uh, patients may worsen en route, which is very difficult uh, if your loved one is in the seat next to you. And then there's always the issue of do you go to the right emergency room facility or to the right facility with the correct level of stroke care needed? At this point in time, we really rely on our EMS colleagues and partners to train the paramedics and EMTs in those types of initial stroke skills and stabilizing those patients in the field, bringing them quickly into the emergency room so that we can then pass off that sort of baton to our emergency room physicians and neurologists or neurosurgeons and get those patients the care they need just as quickly as possible. I'm going to pivot on you just a little bit, Dr. Graybill. We know since March, all the hospitals have been dealing with COVID-19. As you've looked at the stroke care that you've rendered at the Baylor University Medical Center, how has COVID-19 and this pandemic impacted stroke care? Yeah, when, the COVID, when the COVID pandemic first started, there were some early reports that came out of patients experiencing the, the COVID-19 symptoms, also having difficulties with blood clotting problems, even increasing numbers of those patients having stroke. So we know that COVID-19 can be an additional risk factor for stroke, but what we've seen nationally is that in those early months of March, April, and May, People were very afeard to come into the hospital, to come into the emergency room because of the potential of exposure to COVID-19. What that did, unfortunately, was delay patients' care, just as we've already talked about the need for that to happen in acute stroke. And unfortunately, the outcomes were not better in that way. 
in COVID-19, in the pandemic that we're dealing with right now, really our emergency rooms now across the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex are completely able to deal with rapidly assessing our patients with the appropriate patient protective, people protective equipment so that we can get to the bedside, to the patient, the patients into the scanner as quickly as possible and give these life-saving and life uh, you know, disability reducing medications and treatments uh, just as quickly as possible. You know, you mentioned something there at the end of your answer that is going to prompt my next question. I realize you have to evaluate each patient, and each patient is certainly treated differently. But some of those medications, that's another reason to call 911 and get to the nearest appropriate stroke uh, emergency center as possible, because in some cases, that medication can help uh, reduce or minimize the impact of a stroke. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yet we have different clot-busting drugs. Uh, the one we use most commonly is an enzyme the body normally makes called tissue plasminogen activator. Uh, has a trade name of Activase. But basically, this is a medication that's FDA-approved for ischemic stroke when that, there's that lack of blood flow, that infarction happening. And we know that if we treat 100 patients with the medication, Actually, 12 or 13 of that 100 are made almost to normal or back to normal after receiving that type of medication. It really can almost produce a Lazarus-type phenomenon, bringing patients back from severe disability uh, and improving their function. Actually, more patients pass away that we treat with stroke that don't receive the TPA than those that do. There are risks and benefits of any medical therapy that we have, but certainly we want the most patients to go to the closest appropriate stroke care. Uh, again, our EMS colleagues and transport systems are laser-locked on getting these stroke patients to the facilities that are expert in treating them in a timely fashion, and, and really we're all working towards the same goal, improve the patient's outcome, reduce their disability, and then eventually work on, obviously, further prevention and rehabilitation. Dr. Graybill, would you go over that list again so that we can really lock it into our mind of when should we say or think to ourselves or to the person in the room with us, uh-oh, we better pick up the phone? Absolutely. The five categories of symptoms of stroke follow along with weakness and or numbness of the face, arm, or leg, especially when on one side of the body, difficulty speaking, difficulty understanding others, or slurred speech, a language problem, problems with vision, which can include doubled, blurred, or lost vision in one or both eyes, a sudden incoordination, difficulty with balance, or difficulty in walking, or a sudden explosive headache, which sometimes is described as the worst headache of your life. These five categories of symptoms are always most concerning that this may be a new stroke, and as soon as they're identified, patients and their loved ones should call 911 and patients come in uh, via EMS to our emergency departments. You know, certainly our, our 
paramedics and our EMTs are trained in different scales. One of the others the scales that's out there that some of our listeners may have heard about is FAST or F A S T. And that has been put out there for public education and stroke that when patients have a drooping of the face, a drifting or weakness in the arm, a difficulty with speech, that if any of those symptoms happen, that the T stands for time, that they should go immediately into the emergency room and call 911. We are talking with Dr. Dion Graybeal. He's vascular neurology practice and medical director of stroke at Baylor University Medical Center. When we come back in the next segment, if you are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, or beyond, Dr. Gray Beal is going to get your attention in the next segment when we come back with some statistics on the likelihood age bracket of stroke. You're listening to The Human Side of Healthcare. We have a podcast. It's on all the major podcast players, and you can join us there as well. More with Dr. Dion Gray Beal next. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Dion Graybeal. He's the Medical Director of Stroke and practices vascular neurology at Baylor University Medical Center. And for most people, a stroke appears suddenly. So we don't have any prior experience. We don't know what to do. So the first question is, is this something that we are aware of while it's happening, or is it mostly observed by others? No, that's sometimes the problem that we have with patients that would present with stroke because it affects our mind and our brain. Sometimes our thinking and our cognition after stroke can be severely affected. I have seen patients in the past where they may be having obvious symptoms of stroke, obvious weakness, paralysis of one side of the body, but they are not aware of that. Uh, Different uh, issues neurologically of things like we call neglect or agnosias. And so when we're dealing with patients with strokes, sometimes the patient having the stroke is not the best person to determine what they should do. And then it unfortunately will rely on the bystanders, the family members, the loved ones, the friends that are there also to make that determination and call 911 for them. What preventive tests are available that can help detect the risk of stroke before we have one? The risk factors for stroke that we see in many of our patients are things like hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, tobacco and smoking abuse, uh, sedentary lifestyle, obesity, and also family history, which unfortunately you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your parents. When it comes to how we can address preventing a stroke, treating blood pressure on a public health basis is the most cost-effective way uh, of preventing a stroke or a heart attack or other issues. And when it comes to that, Knowing your blood pressure range, knowing what it is, I mean, hypertension really is the silent killer. You know, your body doesn't make your earlobes turn blue and warn you that you're having a blood pressure of 190 over 100. Um, It just happens in some patients. So routine medical care is the start of that. 
After that, obviously, in partnership with your physician, some patients do go through vascular imaging like carotid artery ultrasound. Uh, other patients, because of how different heart diseases may be an increased risk for stroke, like an irregular heartbeat or atrial fibrillation, some patients will have cardiac studies rhythm studies of the heart or the heart rhythm and those sorts of things. I've actually seen that there's been some data out there recently about as all these people have these new wearable health devices like Apple watches or Fitbits or other things that can monitor your heartbeat about how people are using those to identify things like atrial fibrillation earlier when you may not have been aware and then that prompting the discussion with your physician uh, hopefully to initiate a therapy before a stroke has happened. We know there's clearly a correlation between COVID-19 and our hearts and certainly our lungs. Is there any research showing how it may affect our brain? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it is. Some of the earliest data out of China, out of Italy and France, uh, as the pandemic was spreading through those areas, basically we were able to identify that uh, delirium or encephalopathy, that cognitive difficulty sometimes is one of the symptoms that can occur with those initial COVID infections. Um, we've also seen out of New York when the pandemic was raging there in March and April uh, out of the Mount Sinai experience uh, that stroke can also occur in COVID patients that are very young that may not have any of the other risk factors or vascular problems that would predispose them to stroke. Uh, certainly stroke is a devastating illness and it only is further magnified in that regard when it happens to someone younger than is expected. You know, certainly we see that in every 10 years anyone goes after the age of 45, the prevalence of stroke about doubles from 45 to 55 to 65 to 75. But certainly we can see stroke happen at any age. And here at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, given the large number of patients of stroke that we treat yearly, we see that almost half of our strokes occur in an age range under 65. Wow. That would be me, Steve. Yeah, uh, I think uh, that's incredible. Yikes. You mentioned China and New York, et cetera, with COVID. Has that translated also locally? Are you seeing the same pattern in DFW in North Texas? We certainly are seeing that there's an association at times between COVID and, and patients who may have thrombotic problems and stroke. I haven't personally seen at our center the same over-representation of stroke in young people who had an asymptomatic COVID infection. But we certainly are screening every patient that comes in with some of these large vessel strokes for COVID infection and also isolating them from sort of the general hospital population until we've proven with testing that they are COVID negative. Okay, let's speak to the person who hasn't taken the best care of their health over the decades. And all of a sudden they say, yikes, you just woke me up. 45 to 65 is a dangerous window for this. What are things that people can do to walk back and reduce the likelihood of a stroke if they haven't been so attuned to it for all these years? 
you know, th- that's very similar to the question of, you know, I've got this car that I've been driving for the past several years, but I've never taken it in for any of its routine maintenance. Now what should I do? Well, I think you're gonna, when you take it into the shop, you're eventually going to have a really large bill that first time out. So really prevention is the name of the game. Partnering with your local primary care doctor to get things like blood pressure, diabetes, sugar, cholesterol, all of those under control. Obviously, if people are smoking, uh, we would recommend abstinence and stopping there. Uh, When it comes to weight, uh, certainly a lowered uh, body mass index or BMI, getting your weight into a normal healthy level is preferred. There's data out there that a Mediterranean-like diet, um, higher in plants and and vegetable matter, lower in red meats uh, with nuts and legumes and other things uh, can be very beneficial to longevity. Uh, And then as we've talked about before, staying up to date with those routine maintenance and and medical therapies and procedures that your doctor is going to prescribe. COVID equals stress for most people. I don't think you'd have to go very far before you'd find somebody who feels stressed out. We all are feeling it. Does that increase our chances of stroke? Stress in itself alone doesn't, but stress in the body does have a chemical effect, affecting affecting your catecholamines, your adrenaline, and other things. And what we see is in patients who may have, you know, moderate hypertension or high blood pressure, whether they're on treatment or not, certainly their blood pressure then rises. You know, what do we do when we're stressed? You know, do you bring out a bag of chips? Do you eat something salty and those sorts of things? The increased salt intake drives your blood pressure. And so again, you know, it really, from the stress standpoint, it really is that stress doesn't necessarily primarily cause stroke, but stress exacerbates all of the other issues, uh, whether it's blood sugar control, blood pressure, or other things, and then that sets you on the pathway to stroke. You know, somebody said, Dr. Graybill, I love hearing you on the radio. I'd love to be your friend. I don't ever want to be your patient. What would you tell them to do? Talk to your primary doctor. Um, we would love the fact if we could, from a public health standpoint, have no one ever again have a stroke. We just know that that's just not the reality of what it is. And that's why at Baylor University Medical Center, in addition to all of our different partners across DFW, we're all working in the stroke care realm to make it as efficient and better so that when those patients, when the wheels fall off the cart and they really have to call 911, that they can get into the correct place for the correct time for the correct treatment just as easily as possible. Dr. Dion Graybeal from Baylor University Medical Center in downtown Dallas. Strokes are so debilitating, they sneak up on you and they cause so much damage. Prevention is the key. Wishing you a safe week. We'll see you again next week here on the Human Side of Healthcare.